my life now. If the battery falls out again, I don't know what to tell you. I'm probably not qualified to carry such technically advanced <clears throat> equipment. Okay, Revelation chapter 4. Let's look at it together. We're going to make it all the way through verse 1 tonight. So here's how it begins. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place. Metatauta, after these things. So we look, when we began the book of Revelation together, we talked about how the book of Revelation is divided. In Revelation chapter 1, we read about it. In Revelation chapter 1, I want to say verse 19. Let's look there together. Revelation 1, 19. John is told by Jesus to write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. So you have three divisions to the book. Write the things which you have seen. That's chapter 1. What happened in chapter 1? You remember? A vision or the unveiling or revealing of Jesus Christ. So we have this this glorified vision of the Messiah laid out before us. Then, he said, write the things which are. Present tense. During the time of John. So what do we have then? Seven letters to seven churches, right? Encompassing... All the church, the global church. Keep in mind, when, when, when the Lord talks about the church throughout the New Testament, He never speaks of the church in the singular, unless He's talking about a particular city, like the church of Philadelphia. Otherwise, how's each one of those letters end? Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to who? Churches. He always uses the plural when He's talking about the churches, because the universal church, the body of Christ, is made up of multiple bodies, right? There's not just one universal uh, accepted denomination that fits the bill. Jesus uses the term plural, churches. There's, there's multiple churches. Church of Laodicea, Church of Philadelphia, Church at Ephesus. They weren't all the same. They didn't do things all the same way. They all had different letters, different challenges, different issues that they were facing. And Jesus is dealing with each one. So when we look at those divisions, right? The things which you have seen, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. The things which are, seven letters to seven churches. Then, the third division, right? The things which must take place, meta-tauta. After these things. That phrase is plural. Not after this. That's, that's an unfortunate translation. It's plural. After these things. What things is he talking about? What takes place after these things? What did we just finish? Chapter 2 and 3. Seven letters to seven churches. In the first three chapters, how many times is the church mentioned? Well, you're going to have a hard time finding more than a couple of verses between the word church, right? Seven letters, seven churches, challenges to the churches, issues with the churches that were laid out for them. So we see that the, the church takes a prominent place, but it's going to go away. In chapter 4, until we get to chapter 20. That's a long time. When we look at the division of the book of Revelation, 
Revelation 1 being the first part, Revelation 2 and 3 the second, and Revelation 4 through 22 being the third, the things that will take place after these things. As we take a look at that, we can break that down further. One of the challenges we'll have in the next couple of weeks, probably maybe three or four to get through the next two chapters, we're going to be talking about the church and where the church is during this time. That's chapter 4 and 5. I believe the church is in heaven. Then we have chapter 6, the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. If you were with us when we did our Daniel study, we remember that 70 weeks were determined for who? Israel, right? 70 weeks are determined. How many of those weeks are fulfilled? 69. So how many does that leave? One week. One week. Remember that term, week, kepstad. The idea is the same as the term decade for us. If I told you you have one decade left, how, many, how much time is that? Ten years. If you're Jewish and I say you have one week, they know. Seven years. Seven years. So, we know that seven years, 70th week of Daniel, begins in chapter 6 of Revelation and runs all the way through chapter 19. Chapter 19 is the second coming of Jesus Christ. His feet touch the earth. Battle of Armageddon. And remember I told you there's going to be two feasts that we get to in chapter 19. You remember? The feast of the great God, where God calls all the carrion birds of the air to come feast on the flesh of men. That's a bad feast, right? And there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay? We're going to be talking a little bit about that. The marriage supper of the Lamb takes place after the battle of Armageddon in the beginning of what t- what happens in chapter 20. The thousand year reign of Christ. The millennial reign of Christ we see in chapter 20. At the end of chapter 20 we see the great white throne judgment. All the living and the dead are going to pass before the great white throne. And the Bible is very clear. If your name's written in the Lamb's book of life, you're golden, right? That's what he says. The, the ones whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life are cast into the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone forever and ever. Then we have uh, chapter 21 and 22, new heaven and a new earth, and we all live happily ever after. That's the whole overview of the book of Revelation. So <coughs> all of that from 4 to 22 is officially under the concept or under the phrasing of metatauta, after these things. So that's what we just entered into. And just so we wouldn't miss it, Chapter 4, verse 1 has that phrase in it two times. in, In the very beginning of the phrase, look at it. It starts with what? After these things, metatauta. And it ends with what? Same word, metatauta. After these things. The things which must take place. These are decreed happenings. Decreed happenings means that it's going to happen. It's not a, well, maybe this will happen, maybe it won't. If you're good, things could change. No, what the Lord is laying out is that these things are going to take place. When that 70th week of Daniel begins, it is going to happen. Now, as we look at verse 1, I just just want you to look at a few phrases there in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, after these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first thing we see about this door, there's, there's some technical points of grammar I don't want to bore you with, but the idea is 
not that the door was always open, but that the door has been specially opened. And now that it's open, John's being invited to come through it. So this door in heaven has been opened and it's been opened so that he might be able to come to, uh, to heaven to follow the voice. It says, next, a voice like a trumpet. And Revelation 1.10, we're introduced, remember, to the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And how did it describe his voice? Like a trumpet. So you have a voice like a trumpet. It says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. And what did this voice say? Come up here. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus was standing out of Lazarus' tomb, and he said, Lazarus, come forth, what happened? Was there a choice involved? Do you think Lazarus could have said, no, I'm not coming? So God, when Jesus says, well, let's go back to Genesis. When God said, let there be light, what happened? So when God commands, it takes place, right? So you have Jesus calling to John, and he says, come up here. And it's just interesting to me that when we come to the end, I'm not saying this is some kind of proof text. I'm just saying it's interesting that when we come to the end of the prominence of the church in the book of Revelation, it begins with a phrase to the guy writing the book by saying, come up here to heaven and I'm going to show you the rest of what's going to take place. Was God able to show John the rest right where he was on Patmos? He showed visions to Jeremiah, Isaiah, all the Old Testament prophets. So I think there's a reason, a purpose behind the, the directions, the way things came together here in chapter 4. A purpose that we want to be able to take a little bit of a look at. Now when he says come up here, to me it just becomes a great picture of the symbolism of what, uh, what we call the rapture. The scene changes suddenly. We're no longer on earth. We're transported into heaven. The true church is gone. You're not going to see it again in the, in the pages of Revelation. The apostate church is still there, but Jesus is in, in the midst of it. We'll see that as we continue working our way through Revelation. They're going to pass into great tribulation. <clears throat> the church is going to de- uh, depart entirely until we get into chapter 22. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13 kind of lays out the groundwork, foundation for the concept of the rapture. Let's look at it. 1 Thessalonians <coughs> excuse me, 4, 13 through 18. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. So he begins... By challenging us with this concept. There's four times the Apostle Paul is going to say, I don't want you to be ignorant. Four things he doesn't want the church to be ignorant of. This is one of those four. It has to deal with eschatology. And oftentimes a lot of people don't want to spend any time understanding that. Eschatology is just a big word that means the study of end times. The study of end things. So (coughs) when we look at that, he says, Paul to Thessalonica, where he was only there for a short period of time, he tells them, don't you know, don't you remember when I was with you, I taught you this? So Paul's there a short period of time, yet he taught them 
eschatology. He laid out for them a concept of where time is moving, where, where things are going. Now, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. It's a metaphor for those who have died, right? I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep so that you don't sorrow as those who have no hope. He doesn't tell us not to mourn for those who have died. He tells us what? Not to mourn like those who have no hope. Because we have a hope. We have a hope. In fact, the word's going to declare that for us. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, in the same way that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. There's a phrase in Pauline literature that comes up over 169 times. It's the phrase, in Christ, in Jesus, or in Him. Some variation of the concept of where we need to be. So in order for us to be part of the body of Christ, where do you have to be? you got to be in Christ, right? Pretty simple. you got to be in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 is all about that idea. What are the blessings that we have when we're in Christ? Well, you're chosen of God. Where am I chosen of God? In Christ. I'm redeemed. Where am I redeemed? In Christ. I'm forgiven. Where am I forgiven? In Christ. You guys get the idea? So the key important node is that we would understand all of those promises are fulfilled where? In Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 tells us how is it that you get in Christ. When you heard the word, believed the gospel, and trusted in Jesus Christ. So when the word of God was shared, you heard the gospel, you put your heart, you gave your faith to Jesus, and you were then translated from the darkness to what? Light. You were moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son. We were translated into what? Into Christ. 169 times in Christ, in Christ. So what is it that God's laying out through the Apostle Paul? Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep the dead where? In Christ. That phrase is going to come up again. That phrase is going to come up again. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. See, the thought was that those who died somehow were now on a lower rung than those who were alive when Messiah came back. And it's interesting, it's an important point we won't get into too much tonight, but it touches on the doctrine of imminency. The doctrine of imminency teaches us that there's nothing holding Jesus back from coming at any time. In fact, Paul is going to use an interesting pronoun when he discusses the coming of the Lord. We. We look for His return. What's Paul saying? He was expecting it. There was nothing he was waiting for in between. He was thinking Jesus could come back at any moment. That's going to be an important concept for us, the church, moving forward. We're going to see that in several of the parables <coughs> that Jesus talks about. So, 
This we say, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. We won't have a special place for the Lord Himself. Who's going to come? Lord Himself. Paul uses three terms when he talks about the triune God, Yahweh. He uses the term God to talk about the Father. He uses the term Lord to talk about the Son. And he uses the term Spirit to talk about the Holy Spirit. So when he says the Lord will come, he's talking about Jesus Christ. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. Now here's an important concept when we talk about the rapture of the church. He's not on earth. This is not the second coming that we read about in Revelation chapter 19. This is the Lord descending into the heavens and calling with a trump of God the church. Calling his church. And we'll see as we look in this scripture, the church is going to go where? Up. Right? Jesus descends and calls the church up to him. For this we say, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. This last phrase is important. Therefore, comfort one another with these things. See, the the apostle gave this to the church of Thessalonica as a word of comfort. Right? As a word of comfort. Comfort one another. Don't mourn as those who have no hope. Because one day, Jesus is going to come for us. That was Paul's word to the church at Thessalonica. So let's talk a little bit about it. We're just going to broach the subject and start to uncover it a little bit tonight. It's probably going to take at least another week, maybe a little more than that, to kind of unwrap it all. So what is the rapture? The doctrine of the rapture of the church can be stated as follows. At a future time, believers in Jesus Christ will be caught up to meet Him in the air when He descends from heaven. Those Christians who are alive will be instantly changed from mortal bodies to immortal bodies, from corruptible bodies to incorruptible bodies. Immediately before this happens, the believers who have died in Christ will be raised from the graves to their new bodies where they too will be with the Lord. This is also called the blessed hope. This is a distinction that the Bible teaches for the church. This is not the Old Testament saints' resurrection. We know that they will be together with the bride when we come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But this is something different, something special, and hopefully I'll be able to unpack that for you tonight. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, (coughs) Paul again lays out this (coughs) idea of that blessed hope. Let's look at it. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing 
of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So when we come to this section of scripture, we're introduced to that glorious hope. What's a glorious hope? That great appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we want to recognize that the scripture is laying out for us that Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, is going to appear. And this is the blessed hope for the Christian. Now there are several scriptures that begin to lay out this blessed hope, this concept that we call the rapture. Sometimes people get confused. The rapture just kind of came from the Middle Ages. The word? In the Middle Ages, we had a translation of the Bible called the Latin Vulgate. Are you guys familiar with that? So the Latin Vulgate is just the Bible was translated from Greek to Latin. At, at the time, that was the language, lingua franca. That was what people were speaking. So they translated it to Latin. And so the Latin word for being caught up is the word rapier, where we get the English word Rapture. Rapier is a verb, which just simply means to be caught up. And we turned it into a noun to give this moment a name. So they call it a, a word created to, to fit the parameters. We call it the rapture. That's where the idea or the concept of the rapture comes. You want to call it the harpazo. That's what it says in Greek. Harpazo, which means caught up, snatched away. So you can call it the caught up. Or the snatched away, if that makes you more comfortable. But in the Latin, it's called the rapture. So, when we look at it, we want to say, where does the scripture talk about this? Is this something we're just pulling out of the air? So let's look again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, another important section of scripture that we need to take a look at in developing this concept. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Now this I say, brethren... That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. For behold, I will tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We won't all die. But we shall all be changed. Why? Because mortal cannot, heaven cannot go to heaven. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We gotta be changed. So what happens? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So again, speaking of a moment, now I'm, I'm just trying to lay the groundwork for where the concept comes from that we're looking at, what I think we're looking at in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. That concept of... The rapture of the church. And the reason behind that, as we keep working our way through, we see the same thing we just talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. But you know, Jesus talked about this as well. Jesus talked about this in John 14. And you remember in John chapter 14, actually in John 13, just so we can get some context, you remember Jesus washing the feet of the disciples? Right? He washed all their feet. Even Judas? Even Judas's feet. He washed all their feet. And then 
you have the discussion about one of you is going to betray me. Who's who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Finally, Jesus looks over to Judas and he says, what you do, do quickly. Remember? And Judas gets up and leaves. John chapter 14 begins. It's interesting, the timing. Because now Judas is gone. And only the real disciples are left. And he, he has this to say in John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So immediately in verse 1, Jesus puts himself on equal par, equal footing with God. In the same way you believe in God, the same way you worship God, the same way you love God, it's all referred back to himself. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And what's he say? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will what? I will come again. For what purpose? To receive you unto myself. To receive you unto myself that where I am, there you will be also. So as Jesus lays out, it's interesting to me because as we (coughs) begin to gather these sources... Bring these pictures together. Something starts to rise up in the cultural context of the scripture in the second second temple period. Something starts to rise to the surface. There's a picture being painted of a wedding. We have a marriage supper of the Lamb. We have a bride of Christ, right? We have attendance at the wedding. All of these things are spoken of in Scripture. Let's consider just for a minute this illusion. And let's look at John chapter 3 to see what John the Baptist has to say about it. You remember John the Baptist is is asked whether or not he's the Christ. Do you remember? In John chapter 3 verse 26. It says, so they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he... Who was bapt, uh, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. So John's disciples say, John, man, he's the guy, that guy you said, the Lamb of God, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. You guys remember? The guy you testified of, man, everybody's going to him. We don't have hardly anybody showing up anymore. What's going on? Look what John says. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Listen, he who has the bride is who? Is the bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? That's Jesus. Who's the bride? The church. Okay, he who has... He who has the bride is a bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands, hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled, for he must increase, and I must decrease. So listen to what John says. John says, Jesus is a bridegroom. He has a bride that's been given to him by the Father. And I'm a friend of the bridegroom 
who is going to come alongside and rejoice with him at his wedding. Now, if you just hold on to that thought for a moment, and you kind of roll through the, the events that are taking place in the book of Revelation, you have uh, this picture of the Jewish wedding being carried in the background of the stories that we're reading. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church as the bride. And as we work our way through it tonight, in the next few minutes, I just want to give you a, an overview so hopefully you can grasp that context behind the events that are taking place between Jesus and His church and see where they begin to fall into place in Romans chapter 4, verse 1. In Ephesians 5, <coughs> 31 and 32, Paul says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak what? Concerning Christ and the church. Bridegroom and the bride. I just want you to see it's there, right? The context is there about this wedding. Now, what, how, what does that have to do with all the stuff that we've been looking at? What does it have to do with all the things that we've been talking about? There are three aspects to a Jewish wedding. The first one is the ketubah. The ketubah is the betrothal. Remember when we talk about Joseph and, and Mary? That they were betrothed to be married and she was found with child? And you remember Joseph said, I'm going to have to divorce her. But they never had been married. He'd never lay with her. He, they, hadn't, they hadn't done that. They hadn't, they hadn't progressed to the second part of the, of the wedding yet. But at the betrothal, they're considered married. Now I just want you to picture for a moment what the betrothal would be like. The bridegroom would go to the bride's house. They would break bread together. Over the meal, as they broke bread, they would discuss the bride price. What it would cost to purchase the bride. If an agreement was reached, at the end of the meal, they would toast that agreement with wine. The concept of sharing in that wine together was the idea of we accept the betrothal. We accept the, the matter that's been laid out. Bride price is acceptable. We're moving forward. <coughs> the bride puts on a veil. And from that day forward, she's considered no longer available. Hold that in your mind. Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour had come, I want to bring you to the Last Supper. When the hour had come, he sat down with the twelve apostles, and he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The last thing that the bridegroom would say to his bride, after they toasted with wine, he would say to her, I will not touch another cup of wine until we get to phase two. Until I bring you to my house. What is Jesus saying? 
I will no longer eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This is the night in which he took the bread. And he broke it. And he said what? He gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. The purchase price. I'm giving my body to purchase you. This is my body, so do this in remembrance of me. Likewise also, <coughs> he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Purchase price. What am I doing to purchase you? I'm going to be broken. I'm going to bleed. I'm going to give all I am for all of you. And they closed the meal out by taking the cup of the wine and drinking it, symbolizing, like the marriage, we accept the terms. We accept the terms. In Matthew 26, he says, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink the fruit of this vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you. Where? My Father's kingdom. And we're not going to do this again. Part 1. Bridegroom goes to the bride's house. They make a contract. The contract is sealed. And she becomes betrothed to him. Part two of the bride. Part two of the wedding. The bride is to go home and make herself ready. But she has no idea when the bridegroom comes. Traditionally, it would be a year later. Sometimes two. In that period of time, the bridegroom would go to his father's house. And he would prepare an addition to his father's house where he and his new bride would reside together. When the, the addition was completed, the father would say to the bridegroom, It's ready. Go get your bride. Sound familiar? It's ready. Go get your bride. Part two is the wedding ceremony. So for the wedding ceremony, what would happen? The father would tell the bridegroom, go. By the way, what did Jesus say about his return? No man knows except who? The father only? Interesting, no? Interesting. So... <coughs> The father would say, go and get your bride. The bride was to, be, to make sure she was ready, right? We all know the parable of the ten virgins, don't we? The bride was waiting. Her, her husband-to-be came. They sounded the trumpet outside. It's time. The tradition would say for the Jewish wedding that they would go around midnight. So it was fun for them to always try to do it at the, at the weirdest time possible. You know, we really, really want to surprise the bride. So they... Below the trumpet outside, and there'd be a parade as they gathered up the wedding party from the bride's house and took them to the father's house. At the father's house, they would have a ceremony underneath the hoopah. You guys know what a hoopah is? The hoopah, you guys ever seen a canopy bed, right? That's got the canopy around it? The canopy with, that has like the, I don't know what you call it, 
lacy stuff hanging off of it. I don't know, girls like it. Uh, guys think it's in my way all the time. But <laughs> So that canopy around the bed is the chuppah. The chuppah symbolized the presence of the Holy Spirit in the marriage. So the chuppah would just be four posts. They would go to the father's house, to the place he had prepared for her. They would go into the bridal chamber, and he and the bride would stay in the bridal chamber for one week. The 70th week of Daniel is how long? One week. And that during that week, does anybody see the bride? Nope. Nobody sees the bride. Nobody sees the bride during that week. We see a picture of that in the book of Genesis. You guys remember Jacob, right? And the mean trick got played on him. You with me? Jacob, let's look at it. Jacob, Genesis 29, verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. For my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. And so Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. So they go into where the chuppah is, the bridal chamber. Now we go down to verse 27. (coughs) He has discovered now he's been tricked. Right? He's been tricked. So look what he says in verse 27 of Genesis 29. Fulfill her week. You see it? Fulfill her week and we will give you this one also. So he says, when he discovers his Leah, you tricked me, you switched brides on me. The Laban says, look, fulfill her week, seven days in the bridal chamber. And I'll also give you the bride you want. Fulfill her week, seven days, in the chuppah. So what's it say? So then it says, and this one also for the service which you will serve me still another seven years. So do fulfill Leah's week, and then I'll give you, uh, I'll give you Rachel, and you are going to work another seven years for Rachel. But I'll give you Rachel now. So he fulfills her week, and he receives. His, the daughter, Rachel, as wife also. Part two, the bride is taken to the father's house for a week. In a bridal chamber, secluded just her and her bridegroom. Then part three, the marriage supper. After that week, there's a marriage supper. Celebration. What happens at the celebration? <clears throat> the bridegroom... Brings the bride out of the the bridal chamber, pulls back her veil and presents to the entire wedding party, my wife. What happens in Revelation 19? Jesus coming back for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And who's with him? Thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of his saints clothed in white. The bride of Christ. Returning to be presented. At which time the resurrection of the Old Testament saints takes place. And the marriage supper where John the Baptist says, I'm the friend and I'm going to celebrate the wedding of the bridegroom. All 
behind the scenes. There's a cultural context that helps us understand the things that are going on so that we can begin to put a finger on what does all this mean? How does all of this fit together? How does the puzzle pieces connect? And so in the in that picture, we see it. In Revelation 19.9, it says, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. For these are the true sayings of God. The blessed hope. Pictured in a Jewish wedding ceremony. Hinted at to us. All the way through scripture. In Titus. In Thessalonians. Chapter 4 and 5. We're going to be taking a look at all of those. In Philippians chapter 3. In 1 John. And then there's multiple examples. Here's one of the beautiful things. If I was to say to you there's a New Testament concept, there ought to be an Old Testament picture. You with me? So if I say, well, there's, there's this concept of this wedding feast, there's this idea of being caught up where the bridegroom is bringing the bride to the Father's house, then there ought to be little pictures of it throughout the Old Testament. That's one of the things we're going to talk about next time. The the pictures that are painted in the Old Testament to help us recognize, you know what? This is not something that just come out of the blue. This is something we've seen little background scenes to all the way through the Old Testament into the New. That blessed hope. What's that blessed hope? That blessed hope is that not that the blessed hope is not that I won't suffer. Is that what the blessed hope said? The blessed hope is not that I'm not going to ever have to go through difficulties because any of us who are here over the age of 20 ought to know by now that's not true, right? And if you think, if you're, if you're not over the age of 20, sorry. Don't worry, you'll suffer too. <laughs> so it's not that. What's the blessed hope? <clears throat> Jesus. That Jesus is going to come for his bride. What's every movie that we love to watch? Don't we love to watch when the hero shows up at the last possible minute to rescue the damsel in distress? We don't like that? Yeah, Kathy does make me watch it. But as long as, it, as long as there's swords or guns, I'm okay. So we, why, why is that ingrained within us? Why is it that we, that we love stories like that, that we like to see that occur, that we, that we long for those, to hear about that moment when the hero busts in and rescues? Because when we, as we work our way through this concept, probably at least two more weeks, guys, so you've you got to be able to put all the <coughs> pieces together with me. But as we work our way through the concept, I just want you to see it's painted all the way through. The first one in Genesis. So that's pretty early, right? That's the first book. I don't know if you can get it any earlier than that. And coming all the way through. So we want to hold on to that blessed hope. In Philippians chapter 3, <coughs> I just want to share two more scriptures with you tonight. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. 
It says, for our citizenship is where? Am I a citizen here first? I'm a citizen of heaven first. My loyalty here first? My loyalty is there first. Right? And there's no grief between me and the U.S. until the U.S. takes a stance against God. And if you make me pick, then I must obey God first. So I'm a citizen of heaven, it says, Philippians 3.20. From which we also, listen to this, eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And why are we eagerly waiting for our Savior? Look at the next phrase. Who will transform our body, that it might be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is even able to subdue all things unto Himself. So he says, I'm a citizen of heaven, and I am eagerly waiting for the day Jesus is going to change me and take me home. Eagerly waiting. And if I live until that day, I won't be more important or precede those who have died. Because those who have died where? In Christ, right? So we're talking about the church. Those who have died in Christ... They're going to be caught up together. We're going to meet Him in the air. All at once. His bride. His bride. It's a beautiful picture. We look at the pages of Scripture. Now why? What is this? What's the point? Who cares? Who cares? Is is the attitude supposed to be that this is a great escape? And as a great escape, that, that makes it my hope? What's our attitude supposed to be? Last... Scripture reference tonight. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. <clears throat> wow. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Once we were called children of wrath, right? But in Christ, now we are accepted into the Beloved. One of the promises Ephesians chapter 1 tells us we have in Christ. So we we have this love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. But listen, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know... That when He is revealed, we will be like Him. What did it say in Philippians? Citizens of heaven, eagerly waiting for the return of our Savior, who's going to do what? Change us so that we are like Him. We don't yet know what what that's going to be like. We don't know what that's like. But we know when we see Him, then we're going to be like Him. Right? So what Scripture has laid out for us. We know when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Job, way back in the Old Testament, said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and He will stand on this earth. And in my flesh, I will see God, my eyes, and not another." He's saying, man, I'm going to have an experience 
I know my Redeemer will come. So what's the purpose of it? Verse 3. Everyone who has this hope. What hope is that? The blessed hope. The return of Jesus Christ. That He's going to come. He's going to change us. He's going to bring us home. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself as he is pure. We often say, if I know today's the day, I'm going to see Jesus. Does it change what I'm going to do today? Does it change the urgency with which I'm going to do it? Everyone who has this hope, the hope that I'm going to see my Savior, He's going to call me home. And on that day, He's going to change me and I'm going to be like Him. And I'm going to get to see Him as He is. Not how He is in my mind. Not how I think He is. I'm going to see how He is in reality. John says, everyone who has that hope within himself purifies himself. He walks worthy of the calling. That's the value of having a concept of the blessed hope that we call the rapture. This is just a foundation. Again, I'm just trying to lay a foundation of it. Give us <coughs> a little bit of an idea of what it looks like. In the next two weeks, we're going to try to get it all laid out for you crystal clear. If you got any questions, I want you to feel free to come hit me up. I love to talk about it. I love to argue about it. So whatever we want to do, it's all good. But if, if you got questions or you're looking for answers, feel free to ask. That's the only way that you get answers, right? To ask your questions. Let's go before the Lord and ask Him to bless this time. And, and hopefully, again, we'll be able to unpack more as we move forward. Amen?